You are listening to Subro on the Go, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor's Subrogation and Recovery Practice Group, with discussions and perspectives on emerging trends, developments, and best practices. Now let's get started with your hosts, Dave Briscoe and Joe Rich. All right, welcome everybody. Happy New Year. It's great to be back uh, with another episode of the Subro on the Go podcast. Uh, we're back today. This is David Briscoe, and I'm back today with our usual co-host, Joe Rich, uh, from our Miami office. And we have a special guest today, Rob Phelan, from, an attorney from our New York office, been, been working in subrogation for over 20 years. He specializes in, and I can never figure out what name to call these losses that we're going to be talking about today, marine, cargo, shipment, ocean marine, inland marine. But he specializes in all, all this lovely, what I'll just use for short, marine-type losses. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. This, this episode is meant to be a bit of an intro podcast for you know, the traditional subro specialist or someone new to marine and cargo losses looking to understand what I call this mysterious world of uh, marine and shipment losses. And I say mysterious world because, you know, these losses will often have their own set of laws, a set of laws that kind of vary based on when in a shipment process the loss occurs. And those losses may include things like special rules on proving your case, special defenses, special limitations of liability. And as a result, it's important for every carrier and every law firm handling these these cases to have subro specialists and attorneys who specialize in this field. So we brought on Rob uh, today as one of our attorneys who does specialize in this. Um, and, uh, and, and so he and does more forget, in depth. Dave, okay. don't forget Rob is a proctor in admiralty. I don't know what that means, but he can, he can explain it to us when, when you finish your intro, but he is a proctor in admiralty. Right. And if we do a second podcast on this, it could be Rob telling us words from this industry and we have to guess if it's actually a real word or a made up word because um, the terms here are, are quite uh, quite special. And uh, and so Rob does more in-depth presentations for carriers who specialize in, in marine losses. But today we thought we'd set the stage with a bit of an intro and overview to these losses. Um, and we're going to do it in a fun way. We're going to talk... Um, we're going to talk about the traveling squishmallow, and and I, and I'm guessing uh, Joe and Rob, you both have. If you have kids, you have squishmallows. Uh, if not, let me set the stage. So for the last year, my children have been collecting these squishmallow stuffed animal toys. Um, if you don't know what it is, Google it. They're round, very soft stuffed animals, which has created this Beanie Baby 2.0 type of insanity. I mean, there's entire stores devoted to selling squishmallows. There's lines of 100 plus people outside stores when new ones roll out pushing each other to get out of the way when, you know, to get to the Squishmallow section. I may have been in one of those lines, knocking down a six-year-old trying to get to a baby Yoda Squishmallow. But for this Marine intro podcast, we're going to follow the Squishmallow to our insured store in California, and we're going to have various incidents happen along the way that damage the shipment. And so after each incident, Rob's going to educate us on what the basic issues are, who you would pursue, potential liability, damage limitations, etc., for that particular type of loss. You guys ready? Yep, I'm ready. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for having me here. I'm uh, looking forward to participating and sharing uh, the wealth of knowledge and experience that I've gained in subrogating these types of losses and applying it to the Squishmallow. <laughs> All right. All right. So first loss. Uh, so the, this, the Squishmallow in this case is manufactured overseas in China. It's on a cargo ship to a port in Los Angeles. There's a fire that occurs on the on, on the on the uh, ship on the way, and when it arrives in Long Beach, um, water was discovered inside the crate carrying the squishmallows, destroying them all. Um, 
and sad, sad day. And so talk to us, Rob. I threw, you know, kind of a generic set of facts at you, but talk to us about some of the issues that you recognize here. Sure. Uh, There's there's a lot of issues that uh, come up in uh, marine adjustment, uh, marine losses. Um, And, you know, what we're going to start off, I I, kind of want to distinguish our care, our, our clients, insurance carriers, they have their marine policies. And a lot of people think marine and they think it's just uh, what we would call wet marine or ocean marine. Uh, but marine really talks about uh, movable uh, interests, movable in- insurance. Uh, so marine policies can cover things like the squishmallows or cranes or artwork. In this case, it, it does cover cargo that did, in fact, travel across uh, the ocean from China. So we're going to look at some of these uh, ocean marine issues that would come up. Any basic analysis of a uh, international cargo loss is actually a what I would call a triumvirate analysis. You have to analyze the law at the country of origin of the cargo you also have to analyze the law at the port uh, of destination of the origin of the cargo. And finally, you also have to analyze the applicable contract law. Uh, you know, and as, as a subrogating attorney, you can pick which law is most favorable to your client as which venue you may want to choose to pursue a uh, recovery in. Uh, we some uh, countries like the United States have uh, treaties. There's what we're talking about now. It's called uh, COGSA, the Carriage of Goods. Uh, there's a treaty that's on the horizon. It's the Rotterdam. Uh, the United States has uh, signed this, but the the Congress has not ratified it yet, so it's not in effect yet. Uh, and these would limit the. Uh, recovery aspects that you have for cargo coming to the United States. One of the things always about a marine loss you always have to be concerned about is that they move much faster than a traditional uh, property damage uh, statute of limitations. You may have, like for here in New York, we have three years for negligence and six years for breach of contract. Under COGSA, you may only have one year to file suit against a responsible party for, for damage. Uh, you you always want to follow any applicable notice deadlines uh, and invite all parties to inspect the damaged squishmallows. Uh, that has to be done generally within uh, an applicable period of like 24 to 48 hours or seven days, depending upon the bill of lading that may govern the delivery of the cargo. Uh, that's one term I use, the bill of lading. That would be the contract that may govern this shipment of squishmallows. Now I'm making some basic assumptions here that uh, these squishmallows were traveling in a standard container that you may see on one of these uh, large uh, international vessels coming from China. Uh, There are other issues that other cargo can come uh, by other means other than by a traditional container. Uh, your insured's product may be a liquid chemical. Uh, you know, they may, what we would call, uh, sign a charter party agreement and basically rent out a boat. Um, and that would be, I've, I've had losses where I've had, like, for example, vegetable oil going from Central America over to Europe. 
Um, and, you know, they, what they basically do is because that's a liquid cargo, they have to rent special vessels to uh, keep these liquids in. And you want to find out what's the contract uh, at issue here. Now, hey, Rob, let me, about... let, let me ask you. So if let's say there's like 20 and I had this issue come up once and, and I'd like your input on it. Let's <laughs> say you got 24 squishmallows in a box and there's like a thousand boxes in the container. Are there any issues with the bill of lading in terms of how you define what what the total value of the shipment is? Well, I, I mean, I, I, if you're talking about a uh, COGSA coming to the United States, you uh, the COGSA has a, has a limit of $500 per package. And there's a lot of litigation as to what is a package. Uh, if the bill of lading may say, okay, there's X number of pallets of Squishmallows, you know, the argument you would make is you would say, okay, each pallet is its own, you know, box that should be considered for purposes of the $500 limitation. It's it, each one is a package. However, you know, what a lot of the vessels now say is they actually say on the bill of lading that um, each container, and I'm you know, we're talking about the standard 40 by 20 foot, uh, you know, metal containers that you see, that that is a package in and of itself. Uh, and so there is a lot of litigation uh, to be analyzed to find out whether or not, you know, how you would delineate a, uh, what's a package in each case. Well, and the math is just, I mean, it really stands out when you talk about it that way, Rob. I mean, it sounds like you're, you're talking about an entire loss being limited to $500 versus if you could break it down, you know, by every little package inside a container. And now you're talking about potentially, you know, uh, over hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's ironic that uh, I mean, I I have some cases where the uh, because of the description on the bill of lading, the cargo itself may be uh, more expensive on one loss. It may be computers, but due to the description of the number of packages, it may be worth less on the recovery end than you know clothes or shoes because you know in the in the shoe cargo they may have a more favorable description and have more packages. So that although the value of the shoes is actually less than the computers, I get more money on the uh, on that because I'm able to argue the the package argument um, and make a recovery. Uh, uh, of course, you know the best thing to do is 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 to try to you know avoid the uh, package uh, limitation argument, and there are some uh, you know, ways to to get around that. Uh, you know, one of the things that concerns me about this, and I'll just throw this out there and it'll scare you, is that you, know, you said that there was a fire on this boat. Uh, and then there's this whole concept of uh, a general average. If uh, other cargo is destroyed, a vessel may declare a general average, uh, and insurance companies may have to each pay for the, the vessel uh, to have their cargo released. Um, you know, and it's very complicated, and you know we don't get involved in that on the subro aspect side. Um, but it uh, with these masses of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, I mean millions of dollars, of, and thousands of containers on boats nowadays. If there's a fire on a boat, it can impact a lot of cargo. Um, and the vessels, you know, they're insured by P and I clubs, not your traditional insurance companies. And you know they have an interest in you know mitigating their losses. As much as possible, um, so it's it's something to consider. You want to look at, you know, 
did did the vessel declare a general average and how is that going to impact uh, my recovery um you know you also talk about water damaging this these squish mellows uh oh i you you have a certain evidentiary burden of course with respect to causation of any loss that you're trying to prove that the the water damage to these squish mellows did in fact occur during transit uh one of the things that you always want to find out during the investigation of a claim is how were these goods packaged? Uh, and you know you're going to have to talk to the uh, person who loaded it and find out, you know, was this shrink wrapped uh, in China and how was this loaded? Uh, sometimes cargo can sit, you know, before it's loaded into a, a container. It may get wet at the port side. And you have to prove that no adequate precautions were taken to protect this cargo prior to delivery and entry into the container. And nothing can help you like a, you know, a couple of photographs of how this stuff was loaded into the container. Uh, oh, that, sound, know, that you, sounds like really important, right? I mean, because you're trying to establish, you have a great point, you're trying to establish that the damages occurred during shipment. And so, you know, like any subro case, you're trying to gather as much data as you can on what's going on early um, before the incident occurs, right? That's what we want in the traditional several cases, photos and videos of what the loss looked like before before the incident occurred. Um, and so I, I hear your point. Is that How challenging is that to get in terms of photographs and documentation um, on these losses uh, of that it was loaded properly and it wasn't damaged when it was loaded? Well, particularly with high value pieces of cargo that are being transported internationally, hopefully people would take some pictures of the uh, packaging. You know, our understanding of this and expertise in this has, you know, certainly advanced considerably since they've been containerizing equipment uh, over the last, like, say, 40 years. Now, if you if you go back, you know, you should watch an, an old movie, Marlon Brando on the waterfront, and Marlon Brando works on the docks. Uh, in New York, and you know, he and his 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 colleagues can steal uh, booze from vessels as they're unloading them because you know essentially they're they were being transported in nets, uh, and that was how a lot of the old school you know marine losses used to ha happen. They was, it, but with the containerization of uh, cargo, that eliminated a lot of those opportunities for theft and breakage. Um, and you know the the containers are now sealed, uh, and so you have a duty to kind of prove that you know prior to it being sealed, the the, the cargo was loaded safely, that uh, you know it didn't uh, you know it wasn't broken beforehand. I, I I've definitely had some water damage cases where I had uh, metal that was in fact improperly shrink wrapped, and they attempted to protect it from uh, you know, water condensation, but they didn't make any effort to put, you know, essentially those, you know, when you get an international package, you as an ordinary consumer may see those dry packets inside to, you know, make sure that your uh, goods are still dry and that they don't contain moisture because these vessels, they're, uh, your cargo is sitting on a boat for a couple of weeks and it's going through you know, a variety of temperature extremes. It may pass through the equator. It may get cold at night. And there's going to be condensation. And if you have something that's shrink wrapped, you could, in fact, have water getting all over this from the condensation from the rapid fluctuation of uh, temperatures that occurs during the day. So, you know, these are things that you need to look at. And one of your 
chief aides in analyzing this will be the marine surveyor. That's your expert who kind of takes a look for the insurance company and makes a decision, well, what happened here? How did this happen? You know, what were the issues? And that's the person I rely a, a lot on for, you know, advising me you know, what happened and you know, who, and from there I can, you know, come up with a theory of recovery. Hey, Rob, let me, before Dave gives us any more facts on the life of the Squishmallow as it comes into California, let me ask, what happens if the vessel, if the vessel's pulling in and hits the dock or hits another vessel, let's say it wasn't damaged and it comes in, it hits and then the cargo's damaged that way. Are there, and I may be using the wrong term, are there different factors when you're colliding with another vessel? Or, or is that not the term? Uh, so <laughs> I, I, I've, I've definitely drafted my uh, complaints uh, using the term uh, elision and had somebody come back to me and say, oh, you know, a secretary saying, well, we, we need to correct this. You, you meant collision. You know, and I, and I and I have to explain elision is a is, is a maritime term, is when a, a a vessel collides with a stationary object. There it uh, goes. That, he's he's yeah. dropping those fancy <laughs> words on us, Dave. Well, you know, it's the benefit of being a proctor. So you know, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I mean, collisions and elisions are are other marine losses, and I I I do handle those, and those bring in, you know, a whole nother subset of interesting maritime issues that that occur when you, when you have a vessel that may strike a uh, pier or a dock or even another stationary boat, uh, these vessels are international vessels that travel all over the world. You're, you're, you may need to you know, work with your insured and any of their attorneys to you know, arrest that vessel. Um, before they leave the scene, you know, you, uh, this is not something where you're going against a United States company. Uh, all, these vessels, frankly, due to our you know, employment and taxation laws in the United States, they're all, they all carry foreign flags uh, and they have foreign crews. So if you have a, a vessel that's delivering goods uh, from China to the United States, you know, they're not going to stay here in the United States. They're going to drop their, their stuff off and they're going to go somewhere else. So if, 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 if they, uh, you know, collide with, uh, you know, another boat or if they allied with a, a pier or something like that, and, you know, you may be the insurer for the pier, you're going to want to jump on that and see, you know, do I need to arrest this vessel and take depositions of the uh, captain to understand what happened? here was this uh no no it's perfect i mean you just uh well first of all you just made um this maritime law sound way cooler than any other type of law that we've uh we've handled before um and so i'm gonna put i'm gonna push you over because the this is fantastic and the issues you're talking about are great we're gonna in the just in the interest of time because uh it is and we're gonna go over time but this is such it's been such a great topic for us um to hear about we're gonna shift over to the second part because i want to hear about you know some of the damages that occur to this squishmallow when it's when it's now on land and, and get some of your thoughts there um so following our story you know let's say the squishmallow arrives at the port safely right no no water damage um and then it's loaded onto a, a truck with a crane um, but in the process the crane drops the, the load and it damages the squishmallows now um so does that you know what what are your thoughts there uh, again another overview of you know some of the issues that jump out who we're pursuing and and what we what we need to help prove our case in this instance 
Sure. I, I, I would assume that, you know, if you're talking California, you're talking about, you know, the, the port of Los Angeles where this was loaded. Uh, you know, the people that work the, the cranes and unloading uh, the, the boats onto the trucks, you know, they're called stevedores. Uh, and they uh, generally benefit through what's called the Himalayas Clause of the Bills of Lading. Uh, to any COGSA limitation that may be contained in the bill of lading between uh, the the shipper and the vessel interests that issued the bill of lading. So, you know, you're going to be limited. You're not going to say, oh, hey, look, we're not asserting a claim against the the vessel per se. Uh, we're going to assert it against the, the port for the crane operation. And you know they're a acting as basically an actor of the of the vessel. I, I so, gotta ask, Rob, can you can you can you define a little better for us what the Himalaya clause is? <laughs> like sure, that's I, one I, of those ones I think Briscoe's. It's like, another made-up word. word. It's made yeah. up. <laughs> I'm really good at Scrabble and making words up, by the way. So, <laughs> uh, but Himalaya's clause is not a made-up. It's 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 from a uh, a case. Um, and it involved, uh, you know, I, I, I think it was, uh, you know, somebody was descending a, um, a dock that, for, that was pulled up for a vessel, uh, and, you know, they had tried to separately sue, uh, the, the port, and, you know, they basically enforced the, the terms of the bill of lading, uh, or their, or their passenger's ticket against, uh, and said they, you know, they, they're protected and there's no separate extra contractual cause of action that you can allege against a, a, a port for that. Uh, and, you know, it kind of uh, carries over. There's a, there's a Supreme Court decision, Kirby, and it's a successive progeny, um, which talks a lot about how the uh, subsequent inland uh, modes of transportation may benefit from the, you know, original terms in the uh, the bills of lading because of course you know once this cargo is uh low offloaded off the vessel you know it's not immediately in the hands of the eventual consignee it's got to go you know by truck or by rail uh, to get to its ultimate destination here in the united states all right perfect let's shift over then to the the last set of facts here so all right, we follow our Squishmallow. It's now been actually loaded onto the truck to head to the insured store. It's been loaded on safely, but while en route on the on the truck, it's uh, it's hit by an uninsured driver, um, and uh, which which damages all of our Squishmallows. Th thoughts there? Who who are we? Do we have are you referring to? Briscoe, are you referring to a motor carrier? Is that the right word, <laughs> Rob? Yes. Yeah, you know, there you're you're talking about uh, motor carriers. You're talking about Carmack liability. Um, Carmack is you know governs the uh, interstate transportation of uh, goods by trucks. Uh, you, you, those are good cases, in my opinion. Most of the most of the cargo losses I I have. Uh, on trucks, I, you know, I think are very good uh, recoveries. Those are what you know you would call inland marine transport cases. Um, you know, it's 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 a shame to hear that the trucker is uninsured. Of course, that's always a problem <laughs> to uh, recovery. But there are other parties that you you can look at. You you know, you certainly want to find out. You know, why how did this accident happen? Were there other parties involved? Maybe there are other, other pockets. And then, I, you know, what you're talking about here is there's this whole other 
realm of uh, logistics people that are involved. You have uh, freight forwarders, you have brokers uh, that uh, arrange these multimodal forms of transport. A lot of these people have limitations in their contracts, the freight forwarders and brokers, but I, you know, I, I've certainly had success uh, in making recoveries in arguing that these parties have a certain obligation to uh, ensure that the truckers have adequate insurance, uh, you know, to. So, you know, so for those listening, Rob, like it sounds like there's a different set of contracts and agreements you gotta you have to review for land-based transportation i would say well i mean I, you know you want to analyze all the contracts for all the um forms of transport and you know freight forwarders can be involved uh in international or just national uh arrangements of uh cargo depending upon you know who the who the shipper is um so you'll 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 want to get always the the contracts and you'll want to understand how did the uh, the shipper enter into this contract for the shipment of this cargo? There's a line of decisions that say, um, you know, a freight forwarder uh, doesn't have an obligation and can limit themselves if they provide the opportunity for the shipper to request additional insurance. Um, and you know, they it, if if they don't have a website that allows for people to check those boxes and ask for additional insurance you know there's there's arguments to be made that they have uh duties to ensure that the trucker has uh appropriate insurance well and let's say the trucker has insurance and and or the motor carrier and and uh you talked before on the ocean loss example that you know coxa and it's uh and and the you know 500 dollar um, limitation of liability per per package or container. Do we have the similar a similar limitation in a Carmack Amendment type case? Now that we're on land, anything is there something standard? No. So there is there is no such uh, limitation. There are there are separate Carmack issues. Uh, and again, uh, first and foremost, you always got to be concerned about time. Uh, the Carmack Amendment allows for the time for a notice of claim to, to be filed with the responsible party to be reduced to nine months. Uh, and I've, I, I've, I've, I've had a lot of clients give to me, uh, you know, great cases in terms of, you know, responsibility and liability, but nobody acted to, you know, preserve the claim by filing the notice of claim within nine months. Uh, you know, and that's kind of a statutory requirement under Carmack. I mean, there are very few isolated cases where you can, you know, argue around that and say that they, in fact, did have notice and that there was, you know, a, a, a lack to, uh, you know, in essence, meet that paper requirement because, you know, they, they showed knowledge. But, you, they, you know, there are certain requirements that you have to, you know, give them a dollar value uh, and reference the bill of lading. So it's just one of those things that uh you know in recovery it, it's always best to get you know attorneys whoever your attorneys are involved at the early stages of a large loss you know, as so many times in subro when we see people come afterwards uh and the evidence hasn't been preserved or the parties haven't put on been put on notice uh and it's a lot harder for us to do our job to help our clients um if we can't sort of act, if, if nobody's acted at the onset of the claim to you know take these actions to make sure that the 
the best and largest possible recovery is is preserved. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, that that sticks with, you know, the theme of just about every podcast we talk about in subro, and it doesn't matter if it's a traditional subro loss or, you know, marine loss or, or any kind in between. You're, you know, we always talk about subros made or broke in the first 48 hours of a loss because it's just so important to, you know, uh, not just with the notice, in, you know, requirements, but with getting information and documentation of your loss. So um, this was great. I, I mean, it just, it really, you're, you're, you obviously, you know, um, uh, show that you have an incredible amount of knowledge on this, doing this for 20 years, Rob. So I appreciate you taking the time with us today to talk about things, you know, at a high level. Um, and, uh, and so if we do this again, we'll, we'll get into the weeds a little bit more, um, and, uh, and test, uh, you know, whether or not this Himalaya clause is, uh, uh, is in fact a, a real thing, but I appreciate your time. We had a little fun here with some of the terminology. I appreciate your time and thanks. We'll do it again soon.